Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. For those that have been paying attention to the Warhawks in D.C., you know about the Foreign Policy Initiative, an elitist neocon think tank that rose out of the ashes of the infamous Project for a New American Century, or PNAC. When I was placed in the crosshairs of warmongers last year during the Ukraine incursion, I was propelled into a dark world of policy groups that shape foreign policy, yet are completely removed from the electoral process. But journalists like Ken Silverstein have been writing about this trend for years. In 2007, Silverstein conducted a groundbreaking investigation about obscure lobbying firms in D.C. and their role in improving the image of dictatorial regimes in his book, Turkmenistan. And ever since, he's been exposing the corruption of the establishment journalists who hype up the new Cold War and sensationalize the war on terror. Recently, he's been in the news for leaving his job as a writer for The Intercept. But with tensions between the U.S. and Russia escalating every day, I wanted to get his insight on the propaganda wars in the current climate. Ken Silverstein, thank you so much for joining me. Um, let's talk about your 2007, really quickly, your undercover investigation to expose these shady investment deals in Turkmenistan. Uh, just really interesting because I just found out about that reading your bio. What was the craziest takeaway from that experience? There were a lot of crazy takeaways. But I think something that I had realized before, but that became clearer in a different way, was that the everyday corruption of Washington is people just, they don't even think about the bad things that they do. The lobbyists I met with were not only willing to work for one of the worst regimes on earth. I mean, you have North Korea is probably worse. Equatorial Guinea, which has a lot of lobbyists in Washington, by the way, is a terrible West African regime. Turkmenistan is, it's a Stalinist dictatorship. It was then and it is now. Um, and you had lobbyists, some of the best known lobbyists in Washington who are really respectable, if you know what I mean. You know, they've worked for either the Democratic or the Republican Party. They're at think tanks. They have very respectable careers. They not only were willing to work for that government and to whitewash its image, they wanted to. They Because I pretended that I had a lot of money to pay them. And in Washington, there are a lot of people who will do anything for money, not just in Washington, in New York as well, all over the world. But these are people who don't need the money. They don't have to do bad things for money or things they're not comfortable with. They choose to do it. That's what Washington is all about. You know, with all the the dark money and and you know lobbyists are going underground now, it's impossible to even determine how many laws are actually written by think tanks and and policy groups. What would you say the percentages of 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 direct influence, if not actual legislation, just straight up drafted by these external players who are not sitting members of Congress? I. Let me just start by saying I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe that you have lobbyists calling a member of Congress and saying, I'll give you money if you write this bill. Or, you know, now it's not just lobbyists, it's PR firms, which sometimes also lobby. Or it's think tanks, which receive a lot of money and don't disclose it and effectively serve as lobbyists. You know, there are nonprofit groups 
Um, there are all sorts of players. It's not just lobbyists. That's the conventional idea. And they don't, in a way, it would be better if the system was a conspiracy where you had a lobbyist calling a member of Congress and just saying, hey, plan to bill for me. I'll give you all this money for your campaign, which it's not money directly into the member of Congress's pocket, but it is in a way because it's their career. It's what they do. And then when they leave office, they will become a lobbyist or go to a think tank. Um, but the system is fundamentally broken and corrupt because money has overwhelmed it. Mm. I mean, it would be naive to think that at the time of the founding of the United States, when you had slavery and women couldn't vote, for example, that it was an ideal world and a perfect democracy. And so you can't really say that it's worse nowadays. I mean, because when you think back about the conditions then, but I do think, um, if you, and this will sound funny, if you omit slavery and the fact that women couldn't vote or participate in politics, it's worse now. It's certainly in modern times. It's it's basically a new gilded age, but it's even worse because there's no pushback. There's no, the money has so overwhelmed the system. You can't even write stories that surprise people anymore. Um, it's hard to. Maybe the best illustration is I remember The Onion, which is not a real news site, did a very, very funny segment. It was before, I believe it was before the Obama-McCain election, where they mocked the idea that um, they were mocking Diebold, the, mm -hmm. if that's the way you pronounce it, the company that makes the machine, uh, the voting machines. And Diebold, the joke was that Diebold had accidentally leaked the result of the election <laughs> way before the election. And so The Onion interviewed someone from Diebold who apologized profusely for ruining the show <laughs> for all these Americans. And, and he said, um, you know, we apologize to our shadowy overlords for this terrible mistake. We promise never to do it again. That's not a joke. I mean... That's more or less the way the system works. You know, I, I guess I was thinking more of like Alec, you know, how there there has been bills that stamped. Literally, they forgot to remove the Alec logo from the bottom of the, the bill before. It is it's so unfortunate. Right? You're ruining the charade. You know, I do agree with you. It is worse now because we're under the guise of a democracy, under the guise of this free society. And of course, that rhetoric's used to then destabilize other countries. And that's even harder. It's like the myth of the liberal media, right? It's harder to prove. It's harder to prove that it's actually not. Um, it's actually on the way to a fascist um, state. If you look at just the ties with corporations and government, let's uh, talk about the Crimea and, and just the Russia stuff right now, because you've obviously been writing about these think tanks and the role in kind of resurrecting the Cold War for a while. After the Crimea incident, the annexation of Crimea, in which RT anchor Liz Wall, you know, quit RT live on air, of course, right on the heels of me making this statement on air against Russia's actions in Ukraine. Journalists Rania Kalik and Max Blumenthal um, wrote an article titled How Cold War Hungry Neocons Stage Managed Liz Wall's Resignation. It was based on your original reporting, Ken, for Salon, and in many ways similar to what you'd exposed through the likes of think tanks years prior. What was your reaction to this story? Well, sadly, my reaction was this is the way things work and that you have journalists who appear to be or are portrayed to be brave and independent um, 
not really doing anything terribly courageous or interesting at all. And possibly Liz's whole exit was stage managed mm -hmm. by neoconservatives. That sounds conspiratorial and people will say, oh, Ken and Abby are just talking shit, if I'm allowed to say that. Mm -hmm. um, but I would just say, read their piece. Read the piece by Rania and Max and draw your own conclusions. You know, I would also say that some of the people involved in in that incident, Jamie Kirchick, <clears throat> I never know how to pronounce his name, and Eli Lake, anybody who looks at their old record would know that you'd have to be very, very cautious. Caveat emptor, I think, is the Latin phrase, buyer beware. They have long track records of serving as they look like journalists, but they are spokesmen in their cases for other people or interests. And the sad thing is that Eli is probably unaware of the fact that he's doing it. He actually believes right. what he is writing, which is sad. Mm. Jamie is probably a liar, and that is better if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie, I had one very weird experience with, with Jamie and a few with Eli, but I talked to both of them when I was writing about um, how they had allowed a lobbyist for the government of Georgia to pay for their drinks and food and then immediately writ, wrote, excuse me, wrote pieces glorifying the government of Georgia, which was horrifically corrupt. I mean, put like, like, forget any, everything about its relationship with Russia and mm -hmm. a conflict with Russia. You know, like they wouldn't have liked it. They wouldn't have thought it proper if lobbyists for the Russian government had paid the bills of journalists and then those journalists immediately went out and wrote stories glorifying Russia in its war or conflict with, with Georgia. But the funniest thing was Jamie, at the time I reached out to him, we talked on Skype, I believe. I think he was at, of all places, Radio Free Europe or whatever it's called. He's a state propaganda. He was a state propaganda. He, he was, yeah. But when I contacted him, the first thing he said, because he knew I was writing something critical, because he knew it was wrong, right. because he doesn't believe the bullshit he writes. Yeah. He said, I wrote a really positive review of your book. <laughs> yes, he had the one you asked about at the beginning of this conversation, Turkmenistan, as opposed to whatever that, you know, their men in Washington was the Harper's Magazine piece that became the book Turkmenistan. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it, so I had to look it up. And it was like, Oh, wow. So now I have to be nice to you. Right. But that's the way Washington works. Right. No, exactly. I, 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 When I look at Jamie Kerchick, I feel like he is like a performance artist. He's like O'Keefe. I mean, he's a disruptor. He, he doesn't really believe what he's doing. Um, and But Eli Lake sadly does. He really does think that he's a great journalist. Him and Josh Rogan, they're, of course, you know, writing partners now at Bloomberg getting paid 400 fucking G's. Three seventy-five, really? and if you're getting paid that much money, you're not a fucking journalist. I'm sorry, like there's something wrong. You know what I mean? I got paid very well when I worked at First Look Media, but I didn't get paid anywhere near that. And you know what? 
good for them, you know? Like, if, if Bloomberg is that stupid. Um, so the subtitle of your neoconservatives hype a new Cold War article was lobbyists wine and dine eager Washington journalists in a campaign to undo Obama's reset on Russia. And it was written in 2011 when barely anyone was really talking about um, the attempt to undo this reset. Fast forward three years later, here we are. Snowden has been taken in with asylum, NATO posturing on Ukraine, Russia annexing Crimea. How much of a factor do you think these factions in Washington really did play a role in this reset? Well, they're pretty powerful individuals and factions in some way. Politics is not completely predetermined. I think money has overwhelmed the system, as I said earlier. You know, I don't know how the money lines up. It's funny, I read an article once recently in the Washington Post that was unbelievably stupid, which will come as a shock to you. It was an, it was an, the Sunday opinion. It was by someone whose name I don't remember, and I would never read anything by them again, where this person said, billionaires really don't own the political system. And they gave various examples where billionaires had not won. And what they omitted was there were billionaires on the other side. <laughs> You know, so when the system, when you are matching billionaire against billionaire, sometimes one side doesn't right. win. But when billionaires are united, like if you want tax cuts, say, just like for example, or Wall Street wants anything, then either party will give it to them. I mean, every once in a while there might be some small mistake, but not of an, not on anything notable. I mean, not on anything notable at all. The system you know, economically and politically is so like, skewed now. Even some mainstream people, like Larry Summers, who mm -hmm. is a horrible, horrible human being <laughs> in every way, has even said, gee, maybe it's gotten out of control, you know? But that doesn't mean, oh, wow, Larry Summers is a good guy. It just means that the system is so preposterous now that some people think maybe we should do something before the entire country um, is destroyed and there's a permanent underclass of people who can't prosper or, or even progress at all and will be born poor and die poor barring some great stroke of luck. That's how bad things are. But, and if I can digress for a moment, <clears throat> it's funny because you mentioned that um, piece I did. And one thing I've always regretted a little is that Ben Smith, who's now at BuzzFeed and back then was at Politico and who probably Eli didn't even ask him to go out and, you know, attack my story about the Georgia lobbyist, Michael Goldfarb, paying for their bills, including Ben's. Ben didn't take as much money. I omitted him not because I was protecting him, even though he, when he attacked me, he said, oh, by the way, you know, Ken was nice to me when I came to Washington. So now... It, you know, I'm sorry I have to write this story, which if he had written an honest story would have been fine. But he just served as Eli's... Tactics? Uh, excuse me? Tactics. Well, Eli, you know, he went out and defended Eli mm -hmm. because I had Eli was the lead to my story mm -hmm. <clears throat> for good reason. Um, so Ben wrote this big piece in Politico. But the funny thing is that I've never said before, publicly I've just thought it, Ben said to me, he badgered me, actually. He said, who was your source for this story? Okay. And he badgered me so much. And I wrote him, by the way, I have a tendency to overwrite. Um, so I sent him a long, long, long reply. <laughs> and he used 
like a sentence and then pretended that he had given me, you know, it was fair and balanced, right. which just like Fox News or MSNBC, right. it was perfectly fair and balanced. But, but Ben badgered me so that I said, well, I'm, you know, he even said, you know, I normally wouldn't ask about a source, which of course is an improper question because yeah. as journalists, we keep confidences. Yeah. It's the very heart of journalism. But I allowed him to badger me to the point that I said it wasn't a Russian person. And then what I realized later was that the person who tipped me to the story was not the source. The source were their public records that I examined, the lobby disclosure records that Ben could have looked at. Mm -hmm. I wrote my piece on the base of a tip from an interested party who thought what Eli was doing and the others was wrong, but also, you know, thought that the Georgian government was doing stuff it shouldn't be doing. But my view as a journalist is it doesn't matter who your sources are. I mean, you take information from whoever wants to give it to you. Your job is to confirm it. If it's true, it doesn't matter whether you're writing about a friend or an enemy or someone you don't care about. Then you have a story if it's true. All of the journalists got very upset about it. In then Ben, who I didn't even mention in the piece, uh, who now somehow succeeded in journalism and has now got a big job, right. you know, like Eli and Josh, who make a lot of money. Good for them. Well, don't you wish that you were posting gifts of cats in threads on BuzzFeed? Man, what a great publication that is. Every once in a while, by accident, they do something good. Right, so right. Adam Rawson is a friend of mine. He does great work. Yeah. No, that, and that's the hard part about generalizing every publication, is I don't mean to generalize swaths of, of news agencies. Obviously, coming from RT, I know how that is, and I know how unfair it is. I from first look. And, and I think that you just described it better than I actually have ever heard anyone describe it, which is that when billionaires are... Obviously, they're going to hedge their bets and put their money into a bunch of different pots, just like betting on horses, right? But of course, when the billionaires want something to pass, they will unite. And that's where you see all the other racehorses. Exactly. Exactly. And now you have a bipartisan foreign policy agenda. I don't know if it's now. It's been happening for decades, right? You have uh, Robert Kagan you know, uh, who is uh, kind of like insidiously kind of injected, uh, you know, in all of these forms and stuff, really pushing a lot of shit. And then his wife is Victoria Nuland. He's gone on record and, say that, and said that there's absolutely no problem with having, you know, two high profile people kind of pushing this bipartisan foreign policy agenda. Everyone outside of D.C. just doesn't realize that's how it works. No problem at all. It's just that these people have been friends forever um, and they just grow up together. And it just so happens that they shape policy together later on. Your thoughts on kind of that whole incestual. It's sort of like the money issue. It's it's like everyone can see it. It's like the, the emperor has no clothes. It's out there for everyone to see it. Mm -hmm. And everyone, but specifically Washington journalists, don't see it because they are part of the incestuous relationship. They, it's sort of like Eli Lake, just to pick a name out of a hat. <laughs> like he would go out with Michael Goldfarb, who's a good friend of his, who happened to be a lobbyist for the government of Georgia and who happens to believe everything that Eli does. Goldfarb, from what I understand, is actually smart. Eli wouldn't think, or Goldfarb wouldn't think, we're sitting at a table, I think at the Capitol Grill, 
is where they used to go for these weekly or monthly or whatever. And, you know, they're just like lobbyists. And when lobbyists and members of Congress get together, you know what used to happen? And some form of this happens now, because technically this is now illegal for members of Congress, but journalists can get away with a lot more. But I know, because lobbyists told me the way the system used to work, they'd be at the Capitol Grill, just for example, and there'd be a bunch of lobbyists and a bunch of members of Congress or senior staffers or both. And at the end, the bill would be, I'm just making this number up, but like, let's say $2,000 for drinks and 48 ounce steaks or whatever they sell at the Capitol Grill. I've actually once or twice been there and paid with my money, I like for a special birthday party once, even though I'd rather eat sushi, but that's a digression. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, so at the end, the members of Congress would say, hey, you you can't pick up the bill. Here's a 20. Mm -hmm. And they'd leave it on the table and the lobbyists would say, cool, great. We split the bill, even, fair. So this group of journalists, Michael Goldfarb, would take to the Capitol Grill. As I recall, um, you could ask Ben Smith or Eli. Mm -hmm. Eli told me that he, you know, it was like when I talked to him, before he stopped talking to me when the piece came out, that, oh, sometimes I pick up the bill and sometimes Goldfarb does. Now, I don't know for sure, but I do know a friend of Eli's who told me Eli has never picked up a bar bill in his life. Aside from Goldfarb, I mean, I I know on The Intercept, actually, Glenn released those other documents of of Eli being taken out by former Treasury officials and and for another foreign government. I I forget which one. Is that you... When people consistently behave mm-hmm. badly, but as a journalist, mm-hmm. the people I wrote about have consistently been dishonest. And so when they're dishonest again, it's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. And it's not a surprise that they get paid so much money because that's the recipe for success in Washington journalism. How come these journalists can be lackeys, like straight up just lackeys over and over and over again get proven wrong and and get exposed for being lackeys over and over again and still be taken credible still be taken seriously and still be given jobs and be and have this platform where they can just go around and parade and and spread their bullshit well that's an amazing question it's a great question and i would only say that it's like the hanging gardens of babylon or the Northern Lights. Some things in life are purely (laughs) unexplainable. I don't know. I honestly cannot even begin to give you an answer to that. (laughs) You know, and we were talking about this before, about now you have this, you know, New York Times is obviously garbage in a lot of their coverage. Um, But when it comes to publications like, and, you know, of course, even though the youth is tuned out from corporate media, you know, 50% of Americans still get their news from MSNBC, CNN. Fox, but you have the younger generations going online, going to places like BuzzFeed and the Daily Beast, right? The problem is that there's multiple writers, and and I'm not even talking about Eli Lake and Jamie Kerchick. This is people like Miriam Elder, BuzzFeed Ben, um, who actually have these sources, right? So it's like they're planting these sources that are all just this anti-Russian rhetoric, and they put it out there, and it's so much more insidious than, let's say, the corp, like the the traditional corporate establishment. Your thoughts on 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 just that kind of shift 
and and who these people are and where do you think there's like who are these sources i don't know miriam well but i mm-hmm. we like we were friends on or followed each other on twitter i my only experience with her it's been very very brief but mm-hmm. positive and i consider from what i know of her to be of a different sort than some of the other people but i i just mm-hmm. don't know mm-hmm. honestly but as you did say younger people and you know we tend to think of younger people as not being very thoughtful mm-hmm. you know i can only talk about my kids mm-hmm. um who are 20 and 14 um they would never read the new york times right. you know they well actually that's not true they might every once in a while if somebody sent them an article that was unusually interesting and i'd also say that the new york times does great amazing work there are some amazing journalists there a lot of what they do is i just don't find it very interesting because it's just the conventional wisdom it's not even masquerading as independent it's just masquerading as conventional wisdom um but i just would say that a lot like my own kids and other I think they're pretty smart and other smart kids I know don't pay attention to all that shit. They like read Vice, uh, which I'm really happy to say that I write for from time to time. Um, my kids don't typically read what I write because they're my kids. So, you know, like good for them. Um, but they read unconventional stuff. You know, you don't have to agree. It's just like, with friends. I love to argue if I'm having an honest conversation. I don't care. I mean, to me, if, for example, you were, you know, voicing some controversial view or controversial, what's even controversial? Mm -hmm. Controversial is if it's different than your opinion. Mm -hmm. If you and I or another friend of mine were having an argument, I would love to have the argument. So, you know, I don't agree with everything Vice publishes, mm-hmm. for example, or a lot of publications, mm-hmm. the New York Times. Mm-hmm. But I'd much rather read Vice than the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And most people I know whose opinion I value, you know, they wouldn't be caught dead working at the New York Times or Bloomberg or wherever Jamie works. It is fascinating coming from RT and and having being bombarded and propelled with all this anti-Russian propaganda constantly and being told that I'm a propagandist. And I keep telling people, look, um, talk about the facts. Let's have a discussion. If you can, you know, generalize an entire news network and, and reject everything on it because it threatens your worldview or conventional wisdom, that's another thing. Like, don't be a baby and just call me a propagandist. Like, unless you're going to call Rachel Maddow a general electric corporate propagandist, too. That's the same kind of logic. No, that's true. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I mean, that would largely be true. So that's a big difference. <laughs> but you know it, it's it's suffice it to say there's so much fucking propaganda on both sides right you you do have rt serving this role you have the mainstream media yeah and you have the mainstream media just incessantly i mean here's the problem is that russia's denying any involvement still they're just like we don't have any you know military support whatsoever in ukraine so it's almost impossible to even have a level playing field of the discussion when you have one state denying everything and then the other state just unabashedly funding with lethal aid the government how do you, what do you think about these dueling media narratives how do you you know what do you think about the role that rt plays 
and just the role of the mainstream media kind of fueling this, right? Fueling almost an aggressive stance where we are actually on our on a path to potential war with Russia. What do you think about about just this rebranding effort and and pushing the Russian fervor? I mean, are you worried at all about where we're going? You've been writing about this for years. You've been seeing kind of how it all works behind the scenes. What are your thoughts on the future of of the neoconservative rebranding and also the Russia reset that we're seeing now? Well, this is a minor digression, but let me just say that my dream ticket for 2016, which I'm indirectly answering your question, but you might have to edit this. Like my dream ticket for 2016, Angela Davis for president and Megyn Kelly for vice. (laughs) That's the best. That would be like the dream team. (laughs) So, but um, the truth is I don't, I have a lot of interests, including the reset and U.S. I mean, you have to be interested in U.S.-Russia relations because they're two big countries and we live in one of them. Um, But I honestly, I know what the wrong opinions are, like Robert Kagan's, for example. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know exactly what the right positions are. But, you know, I talk to a lot of people um, some who probably would be embarrassed by my mentioning their names, but who just are interesting thinkers on these sorts of topics, um, on the left and right and center and on the extremes mm-hmm. even. <clears throat> and I respect their views, but I couldn't summarize them clearly enough for you. Mm-hmm. What I know is that I don't trust where U.S. foreign policy is going. Um, You know, I know that this is, again, a digression. Like, I know a little bit more about Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And I know that, or at least I think, the Obama administration recently deemed Venezuela to be a threat to, which is preposterous. (laughs) I mean, it's like saying in 1960 that Cuba was going to invade Florida and the United States. I mean, it's ludicrous and yet the new york times although there were some they actually did as i recall one thing from the the we were talking about russia i think but the idea that venezuela is a threat to u.s national security is a joke i mean the idea that anyone you know it's an idea that no one serious could take seriously um and yet the same some of the same people voice views about Russia and the U.S. relationship with Russia, where I feel like there's blame to spread around. Putin is not a man I admire. I don't admire Obama either. I mean, you can say one is worse or better, but I don't think that's a good way of looking at it when you're talking about foreign policy. And I'm, you know, I will say I'm really glad I live here in Washington as opposed to Russia. Um, Though, God. Well, I just, you know why I love living in Washington? Because I don't hang out with Eli Lake (laughs) and those people. I'd rather be home alone Mm -hmm. or with my friends. I really love living in Washington. 
because I just don't spend time with the wrong people. And it's surreal to know that you're so close to it, right? You're so close to the machine. Well, what I think is really interesting, yeah, it's fucking nuts. It's fucking nuts. I'm like literally right down the street. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what I think is also interesting about the Russia reset is, um, is this, okay, so it's, it's the farthest thing from communism, right? I mean, we have an oligarchy total uber capitalist, right? The U.S. should love Russia right now. Like, why the fuck is this kind of dueling, right? Like, so is it just reinforcing each other's, like, image, like, bolstering Russia's image? It works for Russia, right? Because Putin can garner all the support in his own country, and it works for him to be, like, you know, putting out RT as, like, this, um, you know, combating all of the, right. the, the narrative from the U.S. establishment. But what is the U.S. getting out of it? Is it to fuel the military-industrial complex? Is it just to keep some sort of manufactured enemy. Like, I I don't understand what the U.S. is getting out of demonizing Russia so hard if literally, like, everything is run by the same economic <laughs> global system. I don't totally understand it either because yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Right. It's like Venezuela, mm -hmm. where you go, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, like, what is the threat to American national security? Venezuela has a lot of oil. Mm -hmm. And again, not to be conspiratorial, because like the Iraq war or wars, because there was 90. Right, the 91. Right. And then the people died then. Right. And then the latter one. Um, I don't think those wars were purely about oil. I mean, they were about something more than that. I don't even know what, like George Bush's father, he had to defend his honor or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. So it's really complicated and it's hard to believe you know i have i have found that when you talk to people who aren't politicians or lobbyists although i do have some really good friends who are both um not my best friends though but i mean i know good people in politics in you know pol politicians and lobbyists um but it is really true and this is a cliche but when you talk to ordinary people like us, I value those opinions more. Mm -hmm. I have been to Sudan in uh, 2004 or five when I worked for the LA Times. And I met the head of the intelligence service then who previously had handled Osama bin Laden. When bin Laden was in Sudan, he lived there before he went to Afghanistan. He was expelled under pressure by the U.S. government um, and went to Afghanistan where he did nothing. You know, it was like, like in Sudan, he was actually being, they were keeping tabs on him. Um, and the guy who kept tabs on him was the guy I met some years later. He wasn't good or evil. He was something in between. There's not a lot of pure good or evil. You know, I've like, there's Hitler. I'd say that's pure evil. You know, and like, and not because he was uniquely evil. Other people have committed crimes on a grand scale, but I'm Jewish, so it's a little right. personal. Even though he killed 12 million people and 6 million were Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, mm -hmm. handicapped, you know, people who weren't pure Germans. I'm not reducing it to a Jewish issue. <clears throat> but the guy I met was complicated. And you know what? The U.S government and the CIA, this sounds conspiratorial, had a really close relationship with him, super close. 
I didn't meet him in Sudan, even though I traveled there and met people like him. I met him here in Washington. Whoa. Yeah, he came here um, and I met him at, you know, I can't even, no, it doesn't matter at this point. He, I went from my home, which at that point was about a block from here, and got picked up in the middle of the night. No, no, around midnight. And drove. Jesus Christ, a black bag down in front of your. I went with a former CIA official. <laughs> Jesus. I went with a former yeah. CIA official who was smart enough to understand how important this guy was. Mm-hmm. And that I drove to the home of the Sudanese ambassador, the then Sudanese mm-hmm. ambassador, who is a really interesting guy, and met the head of the Sudanese Intel Service. And it was quite a remarkable experience. Previously, I soon before I'd been in Sudan, in Khartoum, you know. And, you know, the Sudanese government is pretty controversial, right? Darfur, mm-hmm. which is horrible. Mm-hmm. And the president of Sudan is the only, to my knowledge, the only sitting president ever to be indicted for war crimes. He's not a good guy. I didn't meet him. Actually, I met people really close to him. Um, but you know what? It's worth listening to just about anyone. And they had very reasonable points of view about why they wanted to get closer to the United States mm-hmm. and why they were tired of being a pariah state and why nobody could really publicly acknowledge it. This was, by the way, during the George W. Bush administration. And there was a back channel that the CIA and the Sudanese intelligence service had going on that wasn't publicly discussed. Um, um, And some really important Republicans, people I generally don't value their opinion on, who were involved in this attempt at a reapprochement. So I had that experience. And recently, I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, where my daughter goes to college, and I kept meeting these South Sudanese taxi drivers and mm-hmm. Uber drivers. I didn't rent a car when I was there because it just seemed easier mm-hmm. and he actually cheaper, you know, because mm-hmm. what the hell, why not save money when you're unemployed? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were really cool people, really interesting. I never actually said to them that yeah, gee, I'd been to Sudan. Well, I did tell them I'd been to Sudan, but never South Sudan. But I didn't tell them how complicated the view, my view was. And you know what? They all underst- They would have understood it. I just felt a little awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you talk to, this was the original point, when you talk to ordinary people instead of Washington elites mm-hmm. and New York elites and elites around the world, life makes more sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at the level of politics and foreign policy. So I guess I'd just say no comment. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, Ken, I have to ask you about First Look. Um, First of all, were there any shakeups whatsoever at the whole pando expose of Pierre Omidyar, you know, allegedly funding these pro-democracy groups in Ukraine through these NGOs at the tune of $400,000? Okay, the truth is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because I work out of this house yeah. we're currently sitting in. Yeah. And I paid no attention to what was going on in New York. I should have, obviously. <laughs> I mean, clearly, <clears throat> it was a mistake not to pay attention. I just thought, this is a great job. Mm-hmm. They're paying me well. 
to do what I want to do, and they're going to publish my stories. And I thought, Omidyar, like, Rupert Murdoch is not perfect. Why did you leave? So there are some things I just won't do for money. I won't work at First Look Media. Betsy will. Glenn will. You know, other people who, like, I won't name. I will not do some things for money. I won't work for a place that cannot publish my work, that is so incompetent, and perhaps, you know, willfully incompetent. I don't know. I need to write. If I don't write, I'm unhappy. Right now, I'm pretty happy. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Absolutely incredible to talk to you. Keep up the amazing work, my friend. Well, the pleasure was mine, my friend. Thank you for listening to Media Roots Radio. This podcast is the product of many long hours of hard work and love. If you want to encourage our voice, please consider supporting us as we continue to speak from outside party lines. Even the smallest donations help us with operating costs. If you do want to donate, please give a shout out to Media Roots Radio in the information line so my brother and I can thank you the next time we do a podcast. Thanks so much.